Before getting into today's content, I want to do a quick introduction. I was joined by new guest Wayne Wallace and returning guest Vicki Whitehead to discuss a number of Indigenous related topics and issues. The primary concern, I suppose, for, for today's podcast uh, is discussing the residential schools of Canada. And we'll get into the details of that in the podcast. And we also talked a lot about Wayne and Vicky's experiences growing up uh, in university, in the workplace, uh, as it relates to identity. Um, going into the lecture series, the, the bonus history lecture series that will be premiering on October 1st, uh, which will be the residential school episode. I, I just wanted to get a bit of a background uh, from two people who have very different experiences than I do. And I figure that if I'm going to tackle a historical subject, one that is uh, quite difficult for an, in a number of ways, um, not only just the residential schools, but if you backtrack uh, and and go into sort of the, the first colonial interactions. It's obviously very difficult material uh, and, as it relates to the harshness of it. Uh, but I feel that it's important uh, as a Canadian as well to understand the perspectives that Indigenous people have. And, and certainly Wayne and Vicky, you're very intelligent, um, hardworking people, and they, they outspoken and and they have a lot of great things to say and just for them to be open enough to have this discussion with me and and with you the the listener as well is is very important and so yeah it was a fantastic episode and very much looking forward to putting this uh, history series out there i'm not exactly sure how i'm going to do that precisely i'm considering just setting up a second podcast uh, and, and just having a link to it. Uh, th there'll be more announcements as as we get closer to the release date. Uh, the only reason I'm thinking for that is just because it's quite different material than the sort of regular podcasts that that I uh, upload. Uh, but yeah, so we're just kind of we'll see we'll see what happens. But anyway, it will be October first. Quick uh, note: we mentioned several times that the last residential school uh, closed in the 80s. And it's actually a small correction to that. Uh, the last one actually closed in 96, 1996. So uh, yeah, just a small correction to the podcast there. And you may notice that there are some kind of choppy bits throughout the podcast. Um, we were all getting pretty fired up having this discussion. It was fantastic. <laughs> so uh, we had to make some edits. And so you'll just kind of notice the audio might sound just a touch more choppy than usual. But other than that, it was a great one. So thank you very much and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva, and today is an interesting episode. It's a we're in person, we're outside, and so today is an introduction of sorts to the lecture series that I'm going to be doing over the next five six months. And for those of you who want some additional information, you can go to the season finale episode twenty three of season two, where I kind of discuss all the updates and whatnot and to kind of give a little extra information so it's the atrocities of the 20th century lecture series 
and today is not going to be too bad as far as the the graphic uh shouldn't really be that graphic at all it'll be pretty hard uh, you know it's it's hard material um, but it's necessary material and today we're going to be talking about the residential schools of Canada and some topics associated with that. And this lecture series, there's going to be more information about that closer to the release date. And so the reason that I wanted to do this episode, uh, I'm, and I'm joined by two guests who will introduce themselves very shortly. Um, but the reason for doing this is obviously the residential schools have become uh, quite newsworthy again, which is really odd to even say it like that because it should always be something, I mean, we're three Canadians sitting here and that's something that we should always be talking about um, regardless of whether it's in the news or not. So, uh, you know, this lecture series was was uh, scheduled uh, or it's been about three months in the making now. And I guess the only effect that the news has had on this series is that instead of doing this episode last, we're doing it first. Um, just to kind of, since it's out there, we might as well put it out there. Um, so anyway, enough of me rambling. We'll get to uh, we'll get to the content. So first of all, uh, returning guest. I can't remember the episode, but it's season two. Uh, Vicky Whitehead. Pleasure to see you again. How oh, you doing? Good to see you again too, Marcus. So it's nice that we're outside. Today. I know. Yeah. I know. It's nice. Hopefully, it's uh, hopefully the background noise will be okay for today. I didn't think about that, and then we started recording. I'm like, oh no, but should be okay. Uh, so for those who have not heard the episode that you were in, which I highly recommend, it was a really interesting one. It was quite an experimental one that we did, and it was a, a lot of fun. I had a great time. But for those who haven't listened to that, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Vicki Whitehead. I'm uh, Cree Métis on my mother's side, um, but I, we grew up away from the community. We grew up here on the West Coast and uh, from a very young age, um, you know, I, I understood that my mom was different than most people just because of how she looked. Um, so that's really shaped who I am when people ask me, you know, how come you um, always say you're Indigenous first? And it was because my mom did too. So just so people know that. Um, and just to bring it on, like, let's just hear what you have to say about that. <laughs> Wayne will tell you that's exactly how I am. <laughs> um, and I met Wayne, actually Wayne and I both worked at Indigenous Services Canada, which is, um, was called INAC, was, you know, creator of the Lovely Indian Act, et cetera. And, um, and then I worked in, uh, for an accounting firm since 2012, working with First Nations and Métis and Inuit only, and helping them structure trusts. And I'm a, an accountant, is my is my background. Thank you so much for the intro. And I didn't actually get your last name. I probably should have done that before we hit record, <laughs> but Wayne. <laughs> so uh, Wayne and I, are, are we're sharing a microphone because we're, we're limited by my, my resources today, so it might be a slight delay to adjust the microphones. But anyway, Wayne, introduce us. Um, yeah, great to meet you, Marcus. Kwe Toli Machuisu Wayne Wallace. Um, I'm Willista Kwe. And what I just said is, hello, my name is Wayne Wallace in Willista Kwe. I'm uh, solely learning our language. Uh, unfortunately, it was not something that was I was exposed to, even though I lived on reserve. Um, we chatted a little bit about that, that essentially the way I describe my community is the, the poster child of assimilation, uh, which is quite sad where I grew up without language or traditions or culture um, 
but I've since been trying to make efforts to do that. Um, so I grew up, like I said, on reserve. I uh, met Vicky, as she said, working for the federal government. So I worked 22 years with the federal government um, and had the vision of going into government to try to change um, essentially policies or essentially support the First Nations rights. Um, yeah, and we've had a wonderful time working together, and now I'm actually working with the First Nation Health Authority as the director of Urban and OA, and essentially as well in that context is as a public servant working for our First Nations communities and really looking at supporting their health and wellness journey. Um, yeah, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, look forward to the conversation. <laughs> Like I gotta get I gotta get an assistant for this moving the microphone around for me so I don't have to do it but that's okay. So yeah, uh, um, so anyway, just to kind of give a little more information, so this lecture series uh, it's a five-parter uh, on a different genocide in different regions during the 20th century. And the 20th century was just a dumpster fire. I mean, I don't know what the hell was going on, but it seems like pretty much that entire century. Uh, horrible, horrible shit was going on, um, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and so with this residential school episode, originally what we were going to do is just this, and that would be the episode. And after going on a book buying binge and spending way too much money on books and resources, um, it's kind of like anything really with any of these history subjects, as soon as you start pulling the thread then you just start seeing all this information and in uncover. And it does get a bit overwhelming at times, but then it made me realize like, oh yeah, this one episode is not gonna be enough. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, you would have to do a, a 10 part, four plus hour each episode, and that still wouldn't cover it. Um, but you know, we do our best. And so I figured for this episode, we'll get into the topics and we'll just kind of see where it goes. And that'll provide the framework for the first lecture that will be in about three, four weeks time. And the other reason that I kind of, um, so my mentality with all five was I pretty much bought most of the resources for all five and I did a skim over all the different topics and did, you know, five, six hours of reading on each one just to kind of get a feel for it. Wow. And <laughs> one of the things that you will discover uh, is that there generally is a, there's a rough formula so if you want to eliminate a certain people, uh, which essentially the residential school, the residential school was a, a microcosm of that greater plot, essentially. Um, and this links all the way back to colonialism, and that's what that lecture will touch on. Today will be more 1900 onwards, and we'll see. It's only 100 years, right? It's not, not much to get through. Um, you know, so we'll just kind of see what, what happens there. But... Generally, if you want to eliminate a culture, uh, you can kill them. It's pretty effective. Obviously, the people aren't around anymore. Uh, you can do that. You can commit cultural genocide, which is also quite effective, because with that, there's also generational effects. And so you don't actually have to eliminate a person to take their identity away. You can do that. You can be a little more creative in a sadistic way to, you know, use the word creative. You can, it can be accomplished. And, and so today's perspective for me as someone who really doesn't know much about the residential schools other than what little I've read and kind of heard, um, 
my perspective, I wanted to go, I wanted to do this first and then go into the reading and, and then do the deep dive because I think the perspective that the two of you have is so unique that my hope is that it will enrich my ability to construct a lecture that is a little more informative. Um, and also just to hear your opinions because you're both very intelligent people and you got that fiery personality <laughs> that uh, I think will go a long way for a topic like this is I can actually, maybe I'll read that passage that you sent me from the Indian Act and that could, the fact that it's even called the Indian Act, but maybe we can start from there and then we'll just let the conversation flow if that sounds good with the two of you. Yeah. So let's do that. Should put this phone on do not disturb, but uh, anyhow. Okay, let's do this. So um, what, was this from a, a, a textbook or a book that you had, Wayne? Uh, it's... Uh... I, found, I saw this on, on Facebook, but it is part of a, a textbook that existed, yeah. Right. Or, or does still exist. Okay. So it's just a few paragraphs, but I'll, I'll just kind of give the overview, and we'll go to Vicky, and we'll go to Wayne, and we'll let the fun begin. So <laughs> anyway, here it is. So the Indian Act. When Canada became a country, the Department of Indian Affairs was created to administer policies regarding First Nations. In 1876, the Indian Act was passed. This gave... This act gave legal power to government to control the lives of First Nations communities across the country. The Indian Act combined earlier colonial and federal laws into one act and included clauses about land, Indian status, and local government. The Indian Act defines who is considered a status Indian. Individuals who qualify as status Indians are wards of the government, meaning that the, acts treat, that the act treats them as if they were children in need of parental care. Before 1951, status Indians were not deemed to be people under the laws of Canada and therefore were denied certain rights that other Canadians enjoyed. Status Indians could only become a person by voluntary enfranchisement, which is to say you relinquish your Indian status. Only then would they be allowed to vote, own property, or have the rights of other Canadian citizens. So there's a touch more, but we'll, uh, we'll kind of let that go for today. So, Vicky. <laughs> and, you know, this may be really shocking for people to hear, but this is not, you know, news to, to myself or to Wayne. Certainly, um, the more you read about it, people now would probably be, be like, oh my God, you know, how could that happen? And, and I can't believe that. And what did people think at the time? And, you know, I think as people, what we do to um, even introduce ourselves or when you meet another First Nation person or Métis person, you talk about your family and you talk about your history. So I always start there. Um, and I would say that my grandparents are um, August Beaudry, Métis from uh, Red River, Métis. And uh, my grandmother is um, Maggie Ghostkeeper, Ferguson Ghostkeeper Beaudry. And the difference between them was August Beaudry is Métis as it's defined in Canadian um, rules around the Métis people. Um, and Métis doesn't mean half-breed. Um, yeah, Métis is a distinct people and it has to do with uh, Louis Riel and the rebellion and where we lived and how we lived. And we weren't French, uh, we were Scottish and um, and Cree. And then on my grandmother's side, uh, she was Cree, but they actually uh, determined um, and called themselves half-breeds. So um, that was a different distinction in the time. So this is in the late 1800s, and there was treaties that were signed uh, across 
all of the provinces, uh, ending in Treaty 8 up in northern Alberta. And Treaty 8, um, anybody who lived near these treaties that were half-breeds were also given uh, land and were basically enfranchised. And it's called scrip. And they were sometimes given money as well. So that's, you know, the records that we have. That wasn't talked about by my mother. That wasn't talked about by my aunts or uncles. There was a lot of stuff that just wasn't talked about. Um, so only by going through now and getting all the records are we seeing exactly what happened and how they were treated. So my great-grandfather, um, Isidore Ferguson, which would have been uh, my grandmother's father, signed that script and took the land. And um, that set up his family to be, but, but define themselves as half-breeds, because Métis didn't exist at the time. So um, what that meant was my grandmother, though, the Métis were still going to residential school. So that's the only record that we have of her siblings existing, is they're on that script. It was before she was born. And we have no records of her, except for when she got married and in some, uh, some other stats. But so she didn't really exist until she was married. And then there's different spellings of her names, et cetera, et cetera. But what we do know through conversations is that she attended the um, Gruard Residential School. So my grandfather, when you read his script, he talks about who he is as a First Nation man, his name, and it's written in syllabics. So his name was written not in English language, it was written in Cree syllabics. And then his, um, his nickname was Musqua, which is Cree for bear. And we have a good laugh because my aunt says every Indian in, in Alberta is, <laughs> is called, his nickname is Musqua. <laughs> you should say that my, one of my son's middle name is Bear. <laughs> ah, that's awesome, called Musqua. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, so, um, and so then there's a big switch and then my grandmother is extremely religious, um, Catholic, would, had, um, you know, 13 children uh, and, and then unfortunately passed away, but she would have periods where she would just go into her room and the kids wouldn't see her, where she just like couldn't take whatever was going on. And the Indian agent was still going around even though they weren't on reserve and checking that they weren't speaking Cree. So this would have been in the 1950s and said to them, you know, stop talking Cree to the kids. This is bad for them and it doesn't help them. They need to learn English and they need to be integrated. So my mother went to a, um, a school that was um, for all the farm kids around in, in, um, in High Prairie and, um, and was basically bullied all the way through school. So that's, I think, just to give it a bit of setting. So when we were born, we were, it was hard to get that information out of her because for her, she wanted to suppress it, but she couldn't because she's this five foot nine big, you know, Indian woman, and you could tell that she's she's First Nations. So she'd always get that um, have to deal with that racism right up right up front in the sixties, seventies, eighties. Anything from you, Wayne? Um, yeah, I mean, my my, my story is different. Obviously, to Vicky's, I think we obviously we all have different stories. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up on reserve, um, but even though I grew up on reserve. Because um, I grew up in the East Coast, so my community is from New Brunswick. Um, essentially, at the end of the day, there was a lot of colonization that had already occurred. Um, some communities were lucky to be able to preserve the language or some of the cultures, but uh, in our in our case, that was not. 
the case. Um, and I remember asking my dad once when I was younger, because I, I knew my grandfather spoke the language. So I guess to give it a little bit of history, like Vicky did, um, so I, I consider myself holistiquay um, from my dad's side, but on my mom's side, it's French Canadian. So I'm in this context, I guess I would be considered a half breed, <laughs> yes, uh, but I, but I am full, full status. So it's funny how the Indian act worked, right? Cause we talked about it. Um, but essentially if, a, an, a, an indigenous woman married a non-indigenous man, a white man, she lost her status. And, and if a white woman married a, um, a first nation man, she gained her status. So in the, my context, my grandfather was full, um, full First Nation, um, and it's my, started at my grandmother level where it started getting the, the mixture of the blood. Um, but my grandmother had status, uh, and then my dad's full status, and then married my mom, who's non-native as well, and she had got status, so I, I'm status, and I'm considered a 6-1 under the Indian Act. Um, because they both um, had status, so it's based on on status, not necessarily the blood bloodline. Um, so yeah, so like I said, I grew up on the reserve. Uh, I I knew I was different, um, and the funny thing where I'm from is the, in our community, there's there's only four families. So if you're a Wallace and you go into town, everybody knows you're from the reserve. Um, so I remember when you know when I was younger, uh, asking my dad actually about you know the language because you you look around and you know. Yes, we're brown skin and all that, but we weren't really any different than anybody else. Um, and essentially what was told to me by my dad, and my dad, you know, we were in a, in a way lucky, but unluckily we were lucky that we were so whitewashed that nobody was sent to residential schools. Uh, everybody, you know, went to the public school that was in town. So that was not my experience, luckily. Um, but on the other hand, um, the unlucky part is the fact that the reason I didn't need or they didn't need to go to school was because they were already assimilated, essentially. Yes, we lived on reserve. Uh, we were First Nations. We were, you know, live in our community. But if you drove through it, and like, unless you saw the Maliseet sign on the side of the road, you, it was as if you drove through town without any distinction between the, the both. But you can't hide your name. You can't hide your skin color. And essentially what my dad said is um, my grandfather didn't teach them the language uh, because he thought they'd be less discriminated against, uh, which was not the case. Uh, my dad growing up remembers, you know, going for a job in, in town and with a friend at, at the paper mill and was essentially told through his friend, um, you know, we'll hire you, but you can tell your friend we don't hire people like him. And, and uh, there's... You know, it's, 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 I say it's funny, but it's, it's not, um, but you don't, you're not, you don't feel any different, I would say being first nations, like, you know, it's like somebody who's, who's African American or, or Hispanic or what have you, like you are who you are. It's only when you're meant to feel different that you start feeling different. And in my case, it started probably when I started, you know, um, trying to look for my first job. And I remember going to the student employment center in town and filled out the form. And this was from 1986, I would say, roughly. And uh, the, I remember the guy, it was a guy, looked at my form and like saw my address like, oh, you're from the reserve. Well, there's programs there. Why don't you just go back and work there? So that was my first exposure to, 
to, well, I, actually looking back, it probably wasn't my first exposure because I remember going into the Woolworth <coughs> in town uh, during my school hours and quite often we go eat at the cafeteria there or, or what have you and go around and check out the records and yes, I, I'm that old. <laughs> we were looking at records. <laughs> People are looking at them again At least now. it wasn't tra eight yeah. tracks, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember one time leaving the store and being stopped by somebody on the sidewalk outside of the store and asked to empty my pockets. And I was with friends and I was the only one who they asked to empty their pockets. Oh. So again, you know, now looking back at that, it's like, oh, it's because of my skin color. It's because they probably saw this native boy and, yeah, we, you know, we steal. Not. Um, so anyway, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you look at the Indian Act, essentially it was a tool to control. Like, you know, as, as you read, like, we weren't even considered people until 1951. And even after that, like, weren't allowed to vote until the 1960s. Uh, well, I, I should say, I should qualify that you were allowed to vote, but you had to relinquish your status. So you were basically not a First Nation person, but you were because you can't hide your, it, it's your identity. So, um, so yeah, I guess, I, you know, when, what I'm trying to say is, is racism was quite prevalent back then. And it still continues to this day. It's just gone underground. Yeah. That's all. It's still there. But it's gone underground. I, and I get it. I'm sure you get this too. You get it from both sides. Like, I can get it from um, Indigenous people themselves. Generally not anybody that I've worked with, and certainly not any bands in British Columbia, have never been like, you know, you're lesser than or whatever because you're Métis. Like, I very much identify with my culture and I'm very proud of it. And that's always been like a fight, frankly. But, um, but sometimes from other people that you'll or they'll ask you like why do you identify if you you know you can kind of pass mm. as white or as half you know why why are you indigenous it's that's a, just a ridiculous question to me why would you ask something like that about somebody's heritage mm -hmm. and you know you're probably more of something else and frankly I have done my ancestry and it's um, I'm more Scottish but um, nobody ever <laughs> was racist against my dad for being you know, having Scottish ancestry. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, I mean, you, you, oh, where do you start, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much, like, it's like, it's like an onion, right? When you, you peel one layer, there's an, an extra layer that comes after that. And, you know, it, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to find the words right now to, to sort of like piggyback on what you were saying, but I'm just at loss for words. Well, it doesn't I'll, happen too often. I'll, I'll help you out. Uh, I'll let you gather your thoughts. But I know the, the awkwardness of one mic. But um, with uh, I'll go to you first, Wayne, like with that, because um, obviously for me, I'm, I'm born in a different time. So, I mean, I'm young. I mean, I'm 25. So I'm not like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay, we're twice your age. <laughs> you know, I just want to say, yeah, there you go. Wayne Qual and I are in the same generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could be your parents. Sitting with mom and dad. <laughs> We talked about residential schools and indigenous, um, you know, First Nations issues, I think in grade eight, maybe, probably, I don't remember. A few hits to the head, probably took that semester out of my, uh, out of my memory. But um, so really no exposure whatsoever. And so when you're kind of 
now starting to hear about, okay, you know, not even necessarily about the residential schools, but the residential schools brings the conversation up. Like, okay, what was it like for indigenous people growing up and just, just daily life, you know, just that whole, what, what, what did society look like? How did it reflect back on you and, and your identity and then having to navigate through all of that? You know, how did that all kind of happen? Um, and so I'll, I'll, so I'll finish the question. I'll, I'll slide the mic over back to Wayne. And then if you want to start, you can start. Otherwise, we'll kind of give it to Vicky again. But um, maybe since you both talked about childhood and, and teenage years pr pretty effectively, maybe we'll talk more about like early adult life and just kind of that. So you started on that about getting into the workforce and and then that you had that terrible experience obviously um but maybe even like university and because you went you you chose uh you chose law i did right so there you go so I'll, I'll hand it over to you but um yeah so maybe just as far as the perceptions that you had of yourself and the perceptions that you had and your experiences that you had just kind of out in the world, how those experiences shaped and, and how that affected identity. So I'll make it as general as I can to <laughs> give you something to work with. But anyway, I'll hand it back over. Oh, um, so I, yeah, so you, you, uh, you mentioned I, I did a law degree, but before that I, I went to University in Moncton uh, and did a, an undergrad in education. And to be frank, I, I don't know if it was because of the people that I was around or maybe the people that I attracted, but I never was discriminated by anybody that I was in close contact with, like at least not in my face. Uh, I mean, we definitely, there was definitely a lot of joking around, yeah. but as indigenous people, we, we joke around, like you, you pick on people you love. So if you're being picked on a first nation by a first nation person, you, you, you know, you're being liked, even though they they might treat you like crap, <laughs> but you know, cause otherwise they don't waste your, they don't bother. Um, you know, I was, I was certainly picked on and, you know, um, you know, I remember one, uh, I don't know if you remember the chips with the the, the Indian boy, oh, the Yum yes. Yum. Yeah. Like my nickname was Yum Yum at yum, one yum. stage. Oh um, looking back now, I'm like, oh, that, <laughs> that, that wasn't really nice. <laughs> but at that time, you know, it, things were, I guess, things were different, but I know it came from a, a, a good place. Like if it was a stranger that called me that, I probably would have been quite offended. But because it was friends, it was a little bit different. Um, and really for me, like it's, it's when I, I went to law school that I really started learning more about First Nation culture. Um, because in my undergrad, looking back, there was actually nobody that I remember that was First Nation aside from me, which is really weird. Um, so you and me both then. <laughs> right. <laughs> but also it's because I grew up in French. So my, my, what I learned at home was French. So I went to French university and the, at first at Université de Moncton. And there's not a lot of French speaking First Nation people outside of Quebec. So um, that's probably one of the reasons. But when I think about when I went to law school, like I said, I, that's when I really started connecting with First Nation people. And I remember, you know, joining the, the Friendship Center and joining the Softball League. And that's really when I started to feel the realization of what was taken away from me in growing up in a whitewashed First Nation community. Because, like I said, although, you know, we didn't have the First Nation tradition and language and all that. I mean, we had our own community 
you know, infrastructure and we had our own community approach to things and we lived as a community and we were all respectful of each other. And, you know, I remember growing up, like, you know, we'd have Christmas parties and everybody would bring like food and potlucks and this and that. And that's, that's what I remember. But, and I remember us living as a community and accepting each other and being respectful of each other. Um, but there wasn't that, that cult, that culture, that first nation culture was missing. And like I said, it's when I went to law school, like I, I learned about smudging and I felt so stupid that as a First Nation person growing up on reserve, I didn't know any of that. I don't know what that is. You, so you don't know what smudging? No. Um, so smudging is essentially, it's one of the four, our four medicines. So there's tobacco, sage, uh, sweetgrass and uh, cedar. cedar. And um, the smudging is normally done with sage or, or sweetgrass. And it's essentially, it's a cleansing ritual. Um, now you have a shell and normally you have a person that will fan the fire and start the, the, the smoke. And it's, a, it's, I, it's sort of like a, well, no, it's not sort of, it's a purification process. The way that, the way I see it, it's a cleansing process. So when you start like a, a meeting and, or, um, I know for us at work, when we, we will do it uh, when, you know, there's heavy hearts or we're dealing with a lot of, of uh, stress or pressure and anxiety or, you know, the, the residential schools and the, the burial sites. Um, you know, you can do like brushing with cedar and, and things like that. But so essentially sweet grasses or the sweet grass or the sage smudging is um, just the cleansing uh, process. And, you know, you cleanse your eyes, your, your, your whole body to just try to take away the negativity and, and just put yourself in a, in, in a good position. So, I, and I knew nothing of that. And I, I actually remember, uh, you know, at that point in law school, uh, I hadn't even smelt what marijuana smelled like. And I know we're going on tangent, but I remember going to pick up one of my indigenous friends and smelling this smell. And I'm like, do you smoke pot? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what it smelled like. Like, that's how naive I was. Now I know a lot more and I've definitely, like I said, I'm, I'm making efforts to learn my language. I'm definitely making efforts to pass that down to my boys, my twin boys. And even just our language, like, you know, Kazelmo is I love you. And I tell my boys every night, Kazelmo. And so now, like it's, now they tell it to me and I, I, it just makes my heart so proud and so happy when I hear them tell me that. Um, so yeah, so even as a First Nation person, raised on reserve I was naive to all of that and now I you know I'm happy I'm happy where I'm at I still have a lot to do because uh you know the Willistiquay language is not easy <laughs> to learn and there's also I live in British Columbia and that's in New Brunswick and there are online platforms and I'm trying to join those but you know with the four hour time difference it's really hard to get on a platform when for them they're doing it in the evening and it's in the middle of the day here and you're working so I, it sounds like I'm making excuses, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. But it's definitely one of my lifelong journeys is to learn more about my culture, learn more about our traditions, learn my language and pass that down to my children and, and basically pass down what was taken away from, from our community and myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess growing up uh, on the West Coast, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast and there's um, the there's a band right there. So, you know, we grew up with the Seashelt um, kids. They went to a different high school. So people's uh, perception of First Nations people 
is really shaped about around that growing up, which wasn't ours. So my mom, I, despite the Indian agent's best hopes, um, actually did pick up Cree, but not all of it. And she didn't speak it except when she would yell at us. <laughs> as you do. As yeah, you do. <laughs> as you do. So those are the words that I learned. And, and we would ask her too, you know, just as kids, you know, what's the word for this or what's the word for that? Like, so my cat was Minos, which sounds like French, but is, uh, yeah, means cat. Menu. Yeah, menu, right? It's yeah. very close. Yeah, Minos. Um, so that was my cat. And Awas. So we would speak Cree to the cat. Awas Minos meant like, <laughs> get out of here, away. <laughs> or Stum Minos meant come come you know okay. yeah and then yeah so you know we uh, there's a few words that i won't say but um <laughs> and oh, one of the first you can say <laughs> well one of the first words i learned was uh, moniaskew which is um white woman mm. or monio which is white man and um because that's what my mom and her sisters would say about other people that were in the room you know, <laughs> yeah. get the money ask you to get it or yeah, yeah. you know do this or, or that which is which was pretty funny and people thought like they were swearing at them or calling them a dirty word but <laughs> it's just you know who they were but yeah so I grew up with those other kids but we weren't like them hmm. but we were all basically treated the same so all the uh I mean this was the 80s when I went to high school same as Wayne and the words at the time were squaw like I heard that all the time yeah, yeah. What, what was the word squaw so, so remember that's how like I said, a slur? It's a slur. So um, I think we talked about this in the last podcast. Mm. But uh, so the Cree word for woman is isqua or esqua, depending how you pronounce it. And um, so woman got shortened to squa. We think it's from that Cree word, but I can't say for sure. But it was definitely a slur, mm. you know, for an Indian woman. And, you know, there was a lot of jokes about how stupid and drunk <laughs> Indians were. And I would have to sit there and... Eh, eh, eh. And, and it was almost like a way of feeling shame about myself. Yeah. And that, you know, the thing from the residential school or the mission school, as it was called, where my grandmother went, because they didn't call it a residential school at the time. That's right. It was the school. So um, it was called the mission school. And my mom and her siblings would get threatened with it. You know, get your act together. You're going to go to the mission school. Um, so uh, for th that, what that did for my grandmother. So look at my, my great-grandfather, her dad writing in syllabics, speaking Cree, and then to her, giving up the language and not trying to speak to the kids and being extremely Catholic. Um, and then my mom not speaking, so very little Cree spoken and not really knowing a lot about the culture. Um, and then to us, and then now us, this generation trying to get it back and, and to, yeah. And so doing the same thing, you know, trying to expand my understanding of um, Plains Cree, which is what was spoken, because there's different uh, variations, right? Different dialects and, and bring that back. But yeah, and, and as soon as I met anybody in college or anything, I always said, like, people would ask me because they say I look Italian, Portuguese or, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, Makes all sense, the time. Yeah. yeah. Or even yeah. Egyptian ones. Like, I don't even know where that comes from. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and saying, no, I'm, I'm First Nation. Yeah. I'm Cree Métis. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. Right. And, and a lot of people do. And, and then, you know, most people like Wayne says are pretty kind, but then they forget. And then you're sitting around and then up come the jokes and the name calling and the whatnot. And so, so me, I, um, always grew up with fighting, right? Not a good fighter would definitely get my butt kicked, but <laughs> mouthy, yeah. really mouthy. No. Yeah. Small <laughs> mouthy. And, uh, yeah, lost every fight I've ever been in just like my 
other parts of my family, but um, but yeah, I always stood up and said something. And it makes people so uncomfortable. And now I'm like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm getting older and tired, I guess, and I'm tired of fighting all the time, so I don't always say something. When somebody goes by and says, oh my god, I can't believe I just got stuck in that powwow for three hours. And I'll say, oh my god, were you dancing and singing and celebrating your culture? And they'll be like, um, no. And I'll be like, then it wasn't a powwow. <laughs> or I'm the, uh, the, I'm the um, lowest on the totem pole. That's a big one that comes up all the time, the lowest on the totem pole. And I remember actually a friend of mine uh, saying to me once that uh, their family was the lowest on the totem pole. And the lowest on the totem pole, like that was their clan, holds everybody else up. Yeah, so even the way that that's used. And then, and the other one, um, Indian giver. And that to me is, okay, so what's interesting about that is if you look at the Indian Act, the Indian Act is holding, so they don't own the land on reservation, just so everybody knows. That's not owned by the First Nation. It's owned in reservation for the Indians by the federal government. So the federal government owns that land and everything on it. You can't have an asset on reserve. So that is where that comes from. Indian giver is the federal government, not the Indian. Yeah. So anybody who says that, they've got it wrong. So it should be federal government giver. There's just so many of them. Oh my god. I mean, this, this, the scalping. Oh, scalping. Yes, the scalping. Right. It was Go ahead, Wayne. Tell them about that. Like the scalping was off was an invention or a, a tool used by the Europeans, specifically the British, to count how many British had killed, how many Indians the British had killed. So they would bring the scalp and they would get a certain amount of money. And all of a sudden, it's like the Indians are doing the scalping, yes. like that it was never us we were being scalped it's just it's it's remarkable what well th this probably was would have been done in the the western context like the western movies right where it got flipped around and all of a sudden it's the indians in the movies that are scalping the white men but it was the other way around um i did want to say something and i i i, I want to apologize to to all your listeners and to even us but i w i forgot to start and i wanted to do a land acknowledgement of where we're at and we forgot to do that, and it's my bad. And again, I'm still learning, even as a First Nation person. But I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the land, the unceded traditional territories upon which we're located. Of all the First Nations, it is what and what is now called Burnaby. And I don't want to miss anybody, so I'm not going to name all the First Nations. But I definitely wanted us to to do that acknowledgement because uh, it's really important. Because yes. we are, we have to acknowledge that we are here on unceded traditional territories of First Nation people, and this land was taken away from them to to for the benefit you know of, of where we are now but um, I think that's really important for us to do but anyway coming back to the scalping um, yeah it's, it's just you know all those little tidbits that, that Vicky was saying right of and I do the same I I, I don't hold back anymore before, I used to be really shy as a kid see I was the opposite so we flipped I, yeah, yeah I've been like I'm tired of fighting everybody so yeah. I could barely look people in the eyes when I started university and it's it's a cultural thing too even though we didn't grow up in much culture like uh, you know as a first nation person like that's the the window to the the soul so you don't normally look at somebody in the eye and that's caused a lot of issues in, in court where yeah. you know like they can't like you know, as a First Nation person, person and culturally, especially if they were brought up in very strong culture, you don't look at somebody in the eyes. Like, it's, it's the window to their soul, so you, you, you're respectful of that. So in the court system, you know, if you don't do that, it's a sign of guilt. Yeah. 
right? Because if you can't look, that means, well, you're guilty because you can't look at me in the eyes and tell me that you're not. So it's just the different, pers you know, the, the different, like, clashing cultures. Um, and, yeah, and I guess we can go back to <laughs> the cultures that existed here, but there was, like, there was thriving laws and cultures all around, but when the European came, and especially the British, it was about conquering, and it was about imposing their views and their perception. Um, but for First Nation people, and you know, we're, we're sitting in this beautiful sunny day outside, and like the environment, the environment, you know, we are the steward of the environment. And that's how we've been, that's how I've been brought up, to always respect. Like I said, even though there was been a lot of whitewashing, there's still bits and pieces of First Nation culture that I look back, I go, well, that, that is part of me, but to protect the land, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, First Nation people signed all these treaties and which meant that they relinquished their rights to the land and all that is because our perception was we didn't own the land. The land owns us. We're part of the land. And as the, the humans, we are the stewards to protecting it. And that's why you see a lot of environmentalists, you know, really looking at First Nation people um, to, to help them out in that context. Um, you know, even we're, we're dealing wildfires right now in the interior and they just came out a couple of weeks ago uh, First Nation people they said why didn't don't you listen to us we know how to manage fires we've done this for centuries this could have all been preventable if they would have followed the model of care that they had in place for the land and doing like you know uh, controlled fires controlled burns to avoid what's happening now but they didn't and look at where we are now so anyway, I digress, <laughs> but you know, it, it, there's just so many different elements of, of our culture that, you know, if, if at that time, if European would have been more, more open to, to a different perception and a different way of life, things could have been so different here. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've loved learning over the years is to trust my instincts more. And at first I really didn't, and growing up, I think what the echoes of that residential school system is the shame. Mm -hmm. And you can't hide from that. And I think I've also passed it down to my son, unfortunately, because, um, because I'm so fearful. I'm so fearful. And uh, it's because I was born in fear. Mm. My mom was so worried about us, so scared for us. Mm all the time for like what not to happen whatever happened to her which was never spoken about and not to happen whatever happened to her mother and how she was born and it passes from mother to mother to mother mother to child mother to mm. child mother to child with my son it will break because um, he's a boy see for me i grew up with a, a white mom and she got status and my mom you didn't fuck with her <laughs> well you didn't fuck with my mom either but yeah like, let me tell you you nobody messed she, with yeah, sue harding yeah nobody messed <laughs> yeah. with her and nobody yeah. messed with her kids and i remember a story uh when my brother my older brother was in grade two and my um so we had in his class there was four from the reserve in that class and my cousin was one of those and in passing just mentioned to my mom my brother never mentioned this to her and this is grade two asking my mom why why does why does steve sit behind the door so just that week was the parent teacher conference and my mom went and uh, asked the teacher where does where, where does he sit and she pointed at a desk just you're 
can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're a fucking liar. She's like, his desk is right there, and I know that's his desk. She says, I want you to move it. She says, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, you're going to move it now. And you're going to bring it in front of the class. And I'm sure that scarred my brother because he repeated grade two. Oh, my gosh. And then he repeated grade eight, uh, seven or eight. So he was held back twice um, and never liked school pretty much after that. Like, what does that do to a child? Like, we talk about residential schools, but even the public schools, like, in our context, treated kids, First Nation kids. And in this context, I don't know why, but it was my brother that she picked on. I mean, I'm sure she learned her lesson because I, I, I got her as a teacher as well. <laughs> and uh, nothing like that ever happened to me. I do remember my hair being pulled. Like, she, she would punish kids by grabbing their bangs and just pulling really hard. That only happened, I think, to me once. But... Um, but the yeah, the good old days, the good old days when, <laughs> when you were allowed to abuse a child in, yeah. in a public school. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, even though we went to public school, um, we did encounter teachers and in this context, my brother who treated him differently to, to the other students, even though there was, like I said, there was four people from the reserve, uh, in that class. So I've been, I've been making my notes over in the corner here. Um, but yeah, a few, few things. So um, b backing up to uh, smudging. So uh, Vicky's actually the one who's told me about that. But we were on a phone call, and you, you told me about that, um, but I couldn't remember the name for it. So I'm glad, <laughs> glad that you uh, brought that up. Um, but yeah, I'll come back to that note, actually, um, at the end of this little spiel here. But um, like when it comes to, uh, so, you know, public school or, you know, residential schools, right? Like the residential schools, because we haven't really said it, but I'll, I'll just kind of make a brief note on it. So basically it was set up, it, it was between the government and the, and the Catholic church. Different churches. Different churches. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. My, my grandmother was Catholic. And, and yeah. uh, there's another one. Anyway, that will be in the lecture series, uh, the, the real nitty gritty on that. Yeah. Um, but essentially it was, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and basically it was it was to quote there's a quote that I'll get to but we you want to take the indian out of kill them. the indian out of the child kill yeah. the indian in the child that's the actual written that, that was the yes. written word yeah, yeah, that, that was of the, the federal the, government at the time that was the motivation yeah and so these schools were they were more like prisons you couldn't leave you know, they were also taken um, so if you were taken from what it, what, whichever area that you were from they would take you to a different province or they would take you hundreds of miles away and that was also intentional uh, to just isolate which is funny because today um, for I mean you would know maybe not so much but if you ever had were you in criminal law no okay but in criminal cases if you're sent to a prison you can petition to a judge if you're sentenced to a prison that's too far away from your family because yeah. it's an undue burden yeah. so you can actually petition that so it's you know Kind of like how you said funny. It's not funny, haha. -ha, it's yeah. funny, holy shit, this is horrible. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's the... the well, parents <laughs> weren't allowed to visit either. If you that's remember, right. they couldn't leave the reserve. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and basically with these schools, I mean, it was just a license to, to abuse and, and to eliminate. That, that was sort of the, that was the premise of them. But anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but talking about like language. So it, you brought up scalping. 
and that was you would get it was like a bounty so yeah. you would actually get bonuses if you got a certain quota for the number of indian scalps that you could bring back and even just to say indian i i, I say indian because that's that's not the appropriate term but to understand historically that was the term then and that's why some I'm people still identify as indian so you know um and because of the indian act so who are we i mean i'll speak for myself but for you to use indian is not a problem for me you're talking about the indian act and and the language at the time yeah and but now when you think about where else do you hear the term scalping you go to a hockey game oh, and yeah. you want to get tickets you call it oh if you buy it from the dude outside it's called scalping a ticket and so I'm not actually really sure. I, I don't really see the connection. Like there obviously is a connection. I just don't understand logically how you connect that. But it's just odd that that term, that's where it came from, was to cut the scalps off of your, your you know, the enemy, essentially. Um, how that has any relation to like buying tickets secondhand or whatever. So I'm not, uh, maybe something I could look into. I may, might be able to find something there. but. When you talk about the power of language, um, it's very odd that, you know, that still exists in that way. Um, but anyway, there, the, so that kind of takes me, there's a little paragraph that I want to read. It kind of ties into a bunch of the stuff that we we're talking about here. Canadian Prime Minister John A. Macdonald commissioned journalist and politician Nicholas Flood Davin to study industrial schools for Indigenous children in the U.S. And the U.S. had their own thing going on down there. Um, I mean, those are, I mean, I think everyone kind of heard of, like, Colonel Custer and, like, sort of the more, you know, um, famous ones down there. But sort of there is some overlap between what happened in Canada and then what happened down in the States. But it's a bit of a different thing entirely. So we'll just kind of ignore that. Either way, um, they butchered them, essentially, for the most part. Um, Continuing on, so uh, Davin's recommendation to follow the U.S. example of quote-unquote aggressive civilization led to public funding for the residential school system. And this is a direct quote. If anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The children must be kept constantly within the circle of civilized conditions. And Davin wrote that in his 1879 report. Um, and that that quote that you mentioned earlier, you know, kill the Indian. Essentially. In the child, yeah. You know that that's from I believe that's from this report, or is it? Is I it don't know. I mean, I just from, I I heard about it when I was working at this yeah. yeah. If it's not in this report, it's in a different one that is going to get covered on, on the lecture. Um, yeah. So I mean, we're kind of talking about a whole bunch of things, but it's just the idea that um, kind of just listening to the two of you in the last kind of few minutes here like talking about the language and the fact that you Wayne didn't even know that smudging was the term like like that's that's well, crazy I, I you know? didn't even know he existed right but but that's yeah. you know the effect yeah well know, and that is cultural that. genocide yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah. shocking and that's well, not long ago no <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, not at all. I'm old, but not that old. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, mean, I do it with my son as well. We smudge with sweet yeah. grass. Sweet grass is from the plains. Sage is here in British Columbia, and there is some sweet grass that's grown here. We're actually looking to grow it, and um, and then of course cedar is here, mm. and tobacco was the other one, and that was also in the um, across the across the country. And so, 
from your perspective now, um, I know Vicky and I have had a couple conversations over the phone about this, um, but now what they're finding at these residential schools, how many have they found the, well, even to call them burial sites, that's not, that's not a burial site, that's a mass grave. Yeah. You, know, that, the, you know, even to say burial site is not correct. That's not what that is. It was whatever happened to those children, they were tossed into a, a ditch and buried, you know, to cover up the, the crimes that were committed there. Um, so now that these are being uncovered, um, how many have they found? It's like four, three, four that they've so, found yeah, I the just, bodies. I think, yeah, one of the things I would like to say is that mm. um, I've always known, and I don't think it's from my mother, so it would probably be when I started working at the government in the mid-90s, that um, children were buried at the residential school sites. And uh, so Wayne and I have friends at, um, at INAC or ISC across the, across the country, and, and I mean, that was just something we always knew. And it was, I think it was mentioned back in the 90s too in the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. And then of course in the, um, yeah, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. So it's not, um, it's not new news. It's not a surprise. Um, and yeah, and then now it's just being reported. So the only thing yeah. that has changed instead of Wayne and I saying that this existed, we have this cultural genocide, this actual genocide, frankly, mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody else says, historians no, no, or not, because it it's yeah. it's in the papers now. The historians are arguing that's not a genocide. Yeah. Argue till you're blue in the face. It was is a that genocide. Actually what's being that said? is what's happening. Yeah, yep, oh, this Canadian historian. Oh, wait till my lecture. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a genocide. No, so yeah, it fits the definition perfectly. Exactly. So and we grew up our definition. whole whole life with this, of being, you know, you're not Indian or you are Indian or you're too Indian. You're not Indian enough. Um, you now and then it was yeah there was no genocide and residential school wasn't genocide um there was no cultural genocide and you just chose to integrate and you're way better off now and you know so you hear mm -hmm. that your whole life and you argue against it and you fight it so it just like it's never going to change it's never really going to change or it'll change slightly mm -hmm. but people are still making this mistake all throughout the world and it's only as good as the people are frankly and the, and, the, and the last mistake, yeah. even in my family, we would say that you don't make the mistakes that your, your, your parents made, you make the mistakes that your grandparents made. <laughs> because that's, that's one a generation really good ago. actually. Yeah. Because that's true. Because it, it, it's, you forget. Well, and if you think you about forget. the language, mm. the language, um, our language, uh, the Plains Cree language is commands. It's not a flowery romantic language, right? <laughs> like if you think about how you're going to survive in the winter and, you know, the buffalo and, you know, it's kill, run. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> White man. Simple. Yeah. Because yeah. it has and, to be. Yeah. And that word, um, moniao, sounds like Montreal. So some, some people say that that's the root of it, right? The white men from Montreal. Right. Yeah, because that's where they were. Yeah, or, <laughs> oh boy. and then other people say, no, it means something about the color of the, the skin. But, uh, but language, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so we grow, I grew up with that because my mom, my dad was always away in logging camp. So I was brought up by my mother who was very much a command, right? Because that's her parents. It was a command language. So I grew up with a command and I get called aggressive now. I get called, like, I, you know, I get told to conform. And so I'm still being colonized. We're still being colonized. We're still getting told, like all the management books, everything is about how to fit in and how to fit in with that colonized culture. 
all my education, everything is, is written towards that. And inside I fight it, but now that, that's my instinct. And I'm going to go with my instinct. I'm going to get you to continue with that, but I want to back you up because you started to go for it. And then, so I, okay. I, I made a note, so we'll come back to that and I'll give this to Wayne too. So talking about uh, today, so how we were saying that in our phone call, uh, few that we've had uh, conversations, I even said to you, why is anybody surprised that they're finding these graves? Because that's exactly what you would do. That, that, that fits the formula. That, that's, yeah. that's exactly how you would do it. And so you kind of discussed your reaction to it, then I'll get Wayne's reaction when I hand the mic over to him. Um, but sort of sitting back now and observing the, the news and, and the reactions on both sides, how does how do you kind of interpret all this stuff like how you know just yeah i think i'll just kind of give it to you generally just like how especially now that you have very young kids who are coming up i mean that must be another level to this scenario too because you got to tell your kids about this stuff mm -hmm. as well when 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 they're old enough of course no, i have already yeah i have already told my kids and i, I as a parent i try to be as honest as i can with them and uh but what, what i did want to i guess before we, we well i'll just mention this so yeah for me i i have i have mentioned it and um you know we talk about the the orange shirt day and what that meant what that means to uh, to this the, the cause um so we've had that conversation and i essentially you know gave them the story the background story around why we wear the orange shirt so we started off uh, essentially by and I'll qualify, my, my boys are twins, so they're seven years old. They're going into grade three. Uh, they'll be eight um, later this year. And just this past year, we, we've had that conversation. And I essentially said, you know, because I said, why, why do you think we're wearing these orange shirt day? And then for me, it's really important for them to, to have that knowledge and, and be educated in, you know, a respectful way and also in, the, in a way that they can understand and not traumatize them, of course. Uh, didn't go into the nitty-gritty, yeah. certainly. Uh, but I did mention about their orange shirt, and it was about a little girl who went to a school, uh, and it was a school for First Nation people, and uh, that sh she was wearing an orange shirt, and it was taken away from her, and she never saw it again. And it was a, a gift that was given to her, uh, I believe by her parent or her grandparent, but I, I don't remember the full story. But So we talked about that, and then we talked about the school. And because, um, you know, it came up again before school ended with the, the burial sites and stuff like that. So I, I asked them, I said, you know, what do you know about it? And of course, they didn't know much or anything. So I try to simplify it as best as I could. And um, uh, one of my sons has been intrigued with death um, from a, a very young age about obviously not wanting to die, not wanting us to die. Uh, sadly, my mom passed away two years ago, so they they now know what death means and and, and what what um, you know what what that context means. So I essentially reference you know use that as a, as a starting point, and I said so. Essentially, what happened and why we wear these orange shirt and why we want to be respectful and, and acknowledge that is uh, little kids went to these schools, and in these schools. Um, the people that were there quite often uh, did not treat them very well. Um, they were taken away from their parents. They couldn't see their parents for months on end. And they were forced to do many things. And many, I didn't get into the details of the sexual abuse and all that stuff. Uh, but I did say that, unfortunately, some of these little 
kids never made it home. And then one of my boys said, did they die, Papa? And I said, yeah, they died. So, and, and that's why we wear these shirts. And that's why we want to acknowledge the, the fact that they never made it out of those schools. Uh, but also all the other people that did make it out of school and the trauma that they, they lived through. So that's kind of this simplified way that I explain it to them. Um, and it, 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 now they know. Now they know what it means. Um, and I guess for me, the benefit was with my mom, not that it's a benefit, of course, with my mom passing, but I was able to use that as a, as a tool to then springboard into death and, you know, the fact that these children never, never made it home. So, yeah, so it's, it, obviously it's a hard conversation as a parent, but, you know, my, the explanation I just gave you, I think is pretty simple for a child. I don't know. I don't think I've traumatized my children in any way. <laughs> Certainly, uh, I didn't get into the, like I said, the gruesome details about it. They'll learn that later. But my answer or to anybody that said, well, my kid's too young to know about this. No, no, that's to me, that is an excuse to not sit down your child and try to explain this situation. Um, so you, you, you talked about, you know, uh, the surprise. And like Vicky said, many or first thereof. or lack thereof many of us many first nation people were not surprised by it because it's always it's always been known and you know the trc the interviews that were done if you read the volumes it's all there so for people to be surprised um you know certainly that's that's a possibility because it's not something that was that's taught in school uh, I know things are changing and the governments are changing trying to bring that in but it's not something that's in history books I never learned that in school. Mm -hmm. I learned that later, right? And like many of the atrocities that happen, like the scalping and the, you know, what I learned in school was we worked with the First Nations and we, we had, you know, they saved up from scurvy or that kind of stuff, right? It's not about, well, we try to kill them first and, you know, <laughs> blanketed them with, with, sent blankets with smallpox and killed like 90% of the indigenous population in North America. We stuck them on this crappy piece of land that just because they happened to be there at the time when the Indian agent came by, called yeah. that the res, the reserve. And yeah, and look, my, my reserve, case in point, one mile by two miles. Yep. And it's full of swamplands. It's cut through by the, the highway. It's cut through by a provincial road. Uh, anything that they can pass through the reserve, they did. There's a pipeline from a paper mill that used to spew its, its chemicals onto the land. Uh, there's power lines cutting through. There's railroads, like you name it. It's there. It's cut through the reserve. Um, so, but I did want to get back to, to the whole, uh, you know, the news that came out. And, you know, the first 315, uh, I think it was 315 uh, children. If I, yeah, it's yeah. It's around around that number. But we're now at six thousand, and it's still going up. I think they and said it'd probably be fifteen thousand, right? Yeah. And it's but well, it's, yeah, it, not. But it's I mean, I don't want to say found. I want to say counted I, or something. I don't know because they're not found. No, no, because they they. Were, Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I think yeah, and I know you've said it. You've said yeah, you weren't surprised. You've done your reading. Uh, you weren't surprised that they they did this. The only thing I think that's changed is that now First Nations have access to money and are paying for ground penetra penetrating radar. Hmm. Is that how that's Yeah, that, yeah I think it was the band that paid to have it done. It's not the government for so sure. So yeah, the no. government didn't pay for no. it. They asked for it in the Truth and Reconciliation yeah. Commission, but they wouldn't pay for it. I did not know that. So they're paying, and actually I worked with the First Nation um, 
So about, uh, you know, I'm going to say three years ago, and they were trying to show where their traditional territory was. Mm -hmm. And um, they used to do uh, burials out in the land before, right? Contact. And everybody knew, like, this person is buried here, et cetera, et cetera. So they were using ground penetrating radar for that. So it was more the um, consultants coming in and saying, you know, here's how we can prove that it's your, it's your territory. Yeah, and I think the government has come around now. They, they have... Mm -hmm. Um, identified funding that they're going to give. Well, I think they have no that. choice. I mean, it's, it, it's always it's, that. I know, yeah. it's no choice. It's yeah. because now you've been put in the spotlight, so yeah. you're going to react. Yeah. Right? But what I did want to say is, you know, like I said, I, I, I think the U.S. is doing the same now as well. And the, the numbers that I just shared, 6,000, and it could, obviously, it could be more, but that's the last number that I saw of, yeah. of the burial sites uh, unearthing in Canada and the U.S. Uh, was at 6,000. For me, what what aggravates me is, where is it in the news? If this was a white, I'm sorry, but if, if this was white children being found, it would be in the news every single day. And they, they, well, it wouldn't have happened in the first place, of course. Yes, definitely. But it would be in the news every single day. They would be reporting. They would be on those sites where they would be discovered. Like that would be in the news every day. What have you heard recently about it? Nothing. No, no, just when it popped up. It popped up. It became, ago, right? you know, hot Oh, yeah. The, I mean, obviously, I see it every day only because those are my friends, right? So yeah. So my friends post about it on, you know, on social media. So that, that's how I see that's it. That's how I see it, That's too. how I get it. I have friends yeah, yeah here, but there's, states, there's Australia. there's no news agency that is actually Except for APTN. It, for, <laughs> APTN, yeah, APTN. Yeah. yeah. But again. <laughs> yeah, they're reporting, they're speaking to the converted, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, so to me, that... that I, I just don't understand it. Like, I, I guess I, I, I expected more, maybe. I always right. expect less. Yeah. I've so learned my lesson to expect. You expected less. I, I was expect expecting less. more. Yeah. Like from like government response? From government response, from news media, from everybody, from all of us. I expected more, I guess, of a reaction to this. And, you know, I, I, don't get me wrong. I know there are people, now that they know this, are like, and I've, I've had, you know, uh, friends reach out to me and say, what can we do? And I, I gave them, a, I gave them, a, I gave them a laundry list. What can you do? Write to your MP. If you're Catholic, write to your church. Why yes. aren't you acknowledging this? Like I, I grew up Catholic. Uh, I'm, I, I remember covering Catholic. <laughs> I've not gone to church in many years uh, for a number of different reasons. One of them as well is because I'm two spirit. Uh, so I'm gay and, uh, and like hell, I'm going to go into an institution that doesn't recognize the relationship that I have with my husband and the family that I created. And I remember my mom, uh, you know, my boys were first born and she's like, so I guess I'll see you for like, you're going to bring them home to New Brunswick and we're going to get them baptized. <laughs> I just went silent. And I'm like, okay, so you want me to essentially offer my children's spirituality to an institution that doesn't even recognize my marriage and there was silence on the other end she's like oh good point uh, and that was it i love your mom yeah my mom my mom my yeah like you know of course and even her like she had issues with the, the church like and she remembers like the priest coming like and i'll give you this is another example of, of just the church and 
just the stuff that they do is my dad told me this story is they the church for many many years try to get our reserve many many years they would come all the time you know why don't you sell it to us like you know we want to expand the parish blah 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 we want to build oh a church we want to do God. all these things non-stop finally the community came together and actually had agreed to do it that's what my dad said on the condition that it could never be sold aside from the purpose of what they were wanting it for that was it done they never communicated about it. What they wanted to do is want to get dirt cheap land and then sell it and make a profit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like it's, it, anyway, I have many issues with the church. And never will I set foot in that. Plus, I'll probably burn myself if I touch the door. <laughs> but uh, that aside, um, no, I never, I never want to set foot in a church. I, and I respect you know, those that have faith in it. I think the church certainly had um, a role to play uh, many centuries ago to keep people accountable because, you know, let's face it, like people grew up in famine and kind of gave them something to look forward to, right? Your spirituality. But now I think it's just, it's a dead weight. Let's drop it. <laughs> well, and they've said now, the Catholic Church has said they'll release the records for residential schools for um, Saskatchewan, I think, oh, and thank BC. You so much. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. But the what? That they have. But yeah. they won't release Alberta. They haven't. They haven't released Alberta, mm. which is where my grandmother was. Yeah. I know I'm off mic, so I'm not on. But the the, the records that exist. Oh yeah, for sure. They're, I mean, the federal government already said, "Whoops, we destroyed them." Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's weird. Why would you do that? I, I'll, yeah. I'll add something to that discussion. And uh, so, you know, after the, the sites were being unearthed, I guess, I don't want to say uncovered. Because I know, they're because not. that's like, not. I, I'm not yeah. looking, I don't know what the right term to say. And even I have issues saying residential schools. They were they were an assimilation camp. Yeah. Let's face it. They were not at school because none of the, from my understanding. Didn't learn anything. And speaking to, to Senator Marie St. Clair. Yeah. Nobody learned anything in those schools. They weren't being taught and educated. They were basically. Indoctrined. Being in, indoctrined. And into the, and abused. The cult and, of the church. Yeah. 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 And being sexually assaulted. Um, and abused. No, I forgot where my chain of thought, where I was going. It's this. contagious. It I is. know, right? Because I'm sitting right next to you. You gave it to me now. Yeah. Oh, now it's on me. Well, yeah. I'll pull the mic back since you both yes. caught my, my crappy uh, yeah, tra trains of thought. Um, but yeah, that, that was... Uh, I was off mic when I mentioned it to Vicky and then Vicky um, said it. But yeah, the, the records that survived um, because they're... Why, why are you destroying... Re and again, you know, you talk about the formula, right? You talk about the formula for this stuff. Rwanda, which is a, another episode, same kind of concept occurred with the genocide that, that happened over there. And then in, in the, for the Gulag episode, I mean, Stalin took it to an another level. There weren't even records in the first place. So that's another level of corruption where you're not even taking the records, you're just shoving people in the Gulag faster than you can count. Um, but that's the thing that... Um, and, and from a, a legal background, Wayne also has, um, that's more, th that's one of the things that's really upsetting to me is because you, you can't even, you know, you did what you did, so own it and move forward and try to, you know, try to bridge the gap. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, you, 
how do you ever bridge the gap? Well, never, um, because that the residential school is a small blip along the long line of travesties that occurred over centuries. Um, but holy cow, like, can you not at least acknowledge that, you know, why did you burn the records then? Or why did you eliminate the records? Well, you know, say what we all know. You know, that's the thing, you know. Um, Nobody, anyway, will, nobody but. will do that. I mean, you just from working in the federal government for as long as I did. I mean, I knew when I worked there and um, and I just started going out and visiting communities, hadn't really done it before, didn't know anything really about them. And then, um, you know, I, I was representing the federal government mm -hmm. and I would sit down with with First Nations here in British Columbia and and um, and they would they would tell me their story and I would be horrified. Every single time there was something new that came out. Did you know that they dammed here and that our, um, our, our burial sites, our cemeteries of our people is now like in the water, it's gone. Did you know that they took our land? Did you know they, they flooded our land? Did you know they put our kids in this residential school and now they won't tear it down? And then, and all these children are buried here. And, and that school just sits there and we got to drive by it every day. And we know everything that happened in there and it was horrific. And at every meeting I would hear more and more about everything the federal government had done. And then they would say to me, so how do we trust you? And I, and I would say, don't, frankly, <laughs> right. don't trust me. But I'll tell you this, from working there for as long as I did, um, that was a conspiracy. That wasn't a conspiracy, that was a mandate. And when they, when we learned about the federal government, and if you look back as to when Indian Affairs started, 1876, mm -hmm. it was, had, um, yeah. so they would actually give envelopes of cash to each of the ministers, right? Here's how much money you have, and it's called a funding envelope. So it still has that name today, but it was actually an, an actual envelope of money. And here's how much money you have to run your ministry. And um, Indian Affairs was, was looped in with defense, same envelope, right? So what is defense about? Protecting the borders, protecting the land, here's what we have. Mm -hmm. So that's where, that's the funding envelope it was in. Yeah, and in the 80s, it was actually part of Immigration Canada. Yes, yes. So we were part of- Immigration. Was part of Immigration. Immigration, immigration really? Canada. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's still politicized to this day, and um, I think we need to depoliticize it. But I, the thing I would say to the First Nations is, here's what we have to work with. Okay, let's figure out how we can change it. That's a longer conversation. And, you know, let's actually figure out how to change it. Generally, it's lawsuits. Um, and in the meantime, I'll, you know, basically do everything I can to help you get whatever it is that you want within whatever means they are. You know, like Vicky said, uh, so I worked as a negotiator with, with the specific claims. And, you know what you're saying about flooding and this and that like I would hear that so many times and it, it's gut-wrenching to hear and I remember once like at, at a table I was pretty much called an apple right first nation on the inside white on the uh, no white uh, white on the red inside. on the outside white, white on, the on the inside, inside. yeah there you go. an apple so I was called an I was pretty I was called an apple like straight to straight to my face and you know I don't blame them because I, I was the one working for INAC. I was representing the Crown. And so I'll qualify that. When I, I went in as a public servant, I had visions and dreams, like, as we all do, right? Yeah. To, to change things, to make things better for First Nation people. And that was my goal. And then four years ago, I went on an interchange and worked for the, F, the First Nation Health Authority, which is a, a you know the first of its kind in Canada. It's essentially programs and services that 
federal government used to manage, First Nations came together in BC say, we can do a better job than you can. We can deliver these programs and services to our people and we will you know, tell what programs and services we need versus being told what we need. So they took that control over that and I can tell you that for the first time in, well, at that point, 17 years, I actually felt like a public servant at the FNHA, at the First Nation Health, because with the Crown, looking back, I wasn't a public servant. I wasn't serving the public. I was serving, serving the Crown. Serving the Crown, yep. I was administering their policies, their laws. I was a Crown servant, not a public servant. At the FNHA, completely a public servant. Yes. Because we are structured and we get our governance by the governing bodies in BC, the communities. And they tell us what they want, what they need. And we structure our programs and services based on that information that we get. And I know that the federal government is looking at, you know, transferring those programs and services. I know they want to replicate what FNHA is doing in other provinces. And I, I can't wait for that to happen because, you know, I look at our communities now and yes, we're still, you know, they're still struggling. There's still a lot of work to be done, but there's been so much great work done already. Um, you know, even even like in the position that I'm in, I uh, so I'm the director of the Urban and Away From Home. And as an organization, we've now turned around where like the federal government, all their programs and services is focused on reserve. In BC, only 30% of First Nation people live on reserve. What do you do with the rest of the 70 yeah. percent people like myself <laughs> and you? Yeah. Like how how are we supported? How is our health journey supported? So there are my organization, FNHA, has turned around and said, no, regardless of where you live, and that's our mandate, regardless of where First Nation people live, we will support you. So, you know, I've developed a framework, we have a strategy, we're moving forward, and we're looking ways of how we can do that. All that to say is that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, INAC, INAC was created for a purpose. INAC was created to control yep. us. And I know there's been many attempts to get rid of the Indian Act, yeah. but without any real solution in place. Like, you can't just get rid of it and then expect people to just, ah, okay, now, like, you need a plan. And, you know, I don't know if it'll, it'll ever happen. I hope it does. I hope that we as, as nations, as communities, can all come together and agree on what that might be. And it might be different from region to region because we're all different. I mean, essentially, this act grouped over 600 communities under one, one, one law to yeah. control us with all different views and pers perspective. Like, yes, we're First Nations, but we all, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different cultures. We all have different ways of approaching things. We have commonality, but we have a lot of distinction as well. So, and that distinction is not recognized under the Indian Act. Well, there's no other law in Canada that looks at a distinct population and says... It's all about you. This is who is in the club, right? Who is, who's an Indian and who's not. This is about you know where you live, how you're gonna live, what you're gonna own, how you're gonna own it. Um, that land we're holding in reserve, how it will be managed. Anything that's below the ground, above the ground, comes through, comes around. Marriage, death. Um, your whole life is governed by an act. No other. No other population here would be um, is treated like that and immigration actually it's about how to become a citizen um, and you know it has its own issues of course it, it very sad stories there as well but um, but it's about how to integrate you into <laughs>
society, society. Yeah, to help you. Uh, and the, uh, the Indian Act is the opposite, how to control you, how to govern you. It was totally a tool to control. Yeah, and you're right about headquarters. I mean, you know, certainly there's still people I work with there that are fantastic. But it's more about the mentality and the, the disconnect well, and the use. You know, it's looking at the history of the actual department. And is and it, 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 is it was it, never... It's no longer relevant. Yeah. It's no longer relevant, and I think that's, that's the, the, the case for it. And if, even going back in history, looking at our parents, and then, um, and then their parents, and what was talked about and what wasn't talked about, versus now, and, you know, everybody talks about their feelings and being supportive of each other, and this, you know, that's great. I'm... I'm you know, I'm happy to be living in this in this time where we, we can do that. That wasn't what my, my parents, you know, we didn't talk about. We never even said we love you or anything like that, I think, until we were, you know, adults and stuff like that. So the, things are changing, but not, I don't know, not fast enough. Definitely not fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. I remember what I was going to say about uh, the residential schools. And so, you know, after, after the... The, the, the burial sites being unearthed and, and all that, you know, you probably saw in the news, there was a couple of churches that were burned. And I remember having a conversation with somebody that was alluding to, this is probably done by a First Nation person. Yeah. And I'm like, well, let me add in a hypothesis to, to what you're saying. And we talked about the church and withholding information. Who's to say they're not burning their own churches down <laughs> to hide the evidence? Like, you know, let's let's be honest here. Let's let's look at all the different possibilities. Yes, certainly it could possibly be somebody that, you know, is is upset with what's happened and has taken matters in their hands by by doing this. Yep. But who's to say it's not the church that just didn't light the flame and we have all these records and see you later. Like, you know, I think people need to to be open minded um, I've heard an, an amazing term many quite often in the work that I that I'm in is to approach things with an open mind and an open heart and I think as Canadians and as you know the world hears about what's happening instead of trying to deny and fight it and it's like the truth and reconciliation right first we need to hear the truth and that's what's happening now without the truth we'll never be able to reconcile I'm not sure if reconciliation will ever happen even in my, my lifetime. I, I hope it does. I hope it does. Um, but it, like you said, Vicky, it, you know, things aren't happening fast enough, certainly. Um, but you know, what, I, what I wish for people to do is just approach things with an open mind and an open heart and just leave your biases aside and listen. Just listen. Don't try to explain. Don't try to justify. Don't try. Just listen. And that in itself will go a long way. I know it would go a long way with me. You know, if people just shut up and listen. Don't try to defend what the church did. Like, you know, that Senator Bayak or whatever her name is. Oh, who, my God. That, or, uh, oh, she needs to be turf. I don't know where that's oh, at. Oh, she right retired, now. but did she, she, uh, on a full what, pension. Lynn oh, ba Bayak, is that yeah. her? Bayak? Yeah, I don't she was a senator. And essentially, she was actually. Um, she said the residential schools were doing were doing good, meant yeah, to do good. They were meant and to do good. And then she said she was Metis, which she wasn't, um, just because they adopted a, you know, Metis person. 
Oh my god. She was basically. When was it? She was. Oh, this is recently. Like last it was ten still years. In the news, like, yeah, last ten yeah, years. Yeah. Like la last couple of years. Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, recently I think just this past um, early They're spring. They're calling. To, yeah. Uh, to there take was her. there was talks about because she had to go through sensitivity training and all that stuff. She to failed be the first reinstated. one. Reinstated. <laughs> yeah. And she failed. Yeah. She failed. So they sent her no. to it. They sent her again, and then and then she, you know, people were pushing for her to resign, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, and yeah. The, they were looking at the, and in Manitoba there yeah. was another Métis guy who said the same tried said something else about so there was a premier same thing like oh residential school they meant well or something you know yeah. equally horrific like just shut up yeah like exactly. don't talk just don't say anything nobody <laughs> needs to know you're your, you know it's like my mom used to say right if you have nothing good to say <laughs> just shut up just shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then there was another guy, and he said he was Métis as well in Manitoba, the new minister of Aboriginal Affairs there. Right. Yeah. yeah, and he said something similar until Wab Canoe came up and grabbed, started pointing at him on the microphone. Yeah. And there was straight. nothing good about residential schools, so making this clear. Yeah. There was nothing good about these schools. No. Nothing. I, I've seen online, too, where people have said, well, oh, well, you know, those kids all died from smallpox, and, you know, they need to do autopsies and all this stuff. It's like... Oh my God, stop it. You don't know. So just stop one, like coming up with right. these crazy ideals. Yes, sure. Um, there was disease at the time yeah. and smallpox was one of them. Absolutely. Um, other tuberculosis, etc. Yeah. But um, there was also the medical experiments that they were doing on the children in the residential schools. And, and, and the then all the, the horrific stories yeah. that, you know, we don't want to get into, but I know you will. And yeah, yeah. yeah cause I don't, yeah. And, um, and then, and then you have a whole generation that wasn't parented and that was abused. And then, okay, and I'll then they go I'll and have... Clarify. Generations. Generations, yes. There was okay. like generations there was that were not Three parented. generations, three, yeah. three to four, I guess, generations, because yeah. my grandma would have gone in the early 1900s. Yeah, because they were around like in the... 1870s. 18, 76, yeah, I guess would have been. And then the last one was 1980. Um, the last one was shut down in the 80s in Saskatchewan. So oh. all of those, um, and then there was the day schools too um, after that. So all those generations with, mm -hmm. that didn't have parenting skills and then having children and having physical, mental, sexual abuse, and then um, just wanting to love their kids and look after them, but also, um, you know, and then there was the alcohol abuse that comes with it because they're trying to um, deal with the pain and the suffering. And then those children having the alcoholism and yeah. the pain and the suffering. And then that's my parent. Like that was my mother. She she died from liver failure from alcoholism. Um, uh, we didn't know. We just found out a month ago we have another sibling that she had given up in the 60s. Yeah, so more than likely part of the 60s scoop. Um, so this is an older sibling of mine in between two of my sisters. So, um, wow. yeah. So, we, you know, there's still all this stuff that just keeps coming up. And then, you know, we pass that on to our children. Mm -hmm. And they said, I mean, you know, they've said, First Nations have said it'll be seven generations before we're... It's taking seven generations to call this. It's going to take seven generations to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to get to your point, and somebody also brought that. Like I had actually just yesterday a conversation about about this, and the person asked, oh, well, you know, there was a lot of disease, and how do we know if they died from this or that? I said, okay, irrespective of that, 
they were thrown into a ditch and buried. No gravestone, no nothing, no respect. And, and th those were those that were thrown in the dirt. You know, th there was people that were thrown in, like, some of them were thrown in furnace. In the furnace, like, yeah. To hide the evidence, right? Yeah. So I said, irrespective of that, and yes, certainly, probably some of them, but it, you know, the death could have also been prevented. <laughs> right? Because, yes, tuberculosis existed then, but they they had, in the 40s, a vaccine for it. But for whatever reason, First Nations weren't getting it. They were still being sent to Indian hospitals to test. And sanit yeah. yeah. And so I said, irrespective of that, it's just the abuse and the neglect. Like, you know, there was a doctor that, that went around, and I forget his name Oh, now. yeah, that report. Um, yeah, and did the report about yep. the, the atrocities and what he saw. And he was muffled. I forget his name now, but he's buried actually in Ottawa, and they found somebody found his his grave. But um, no, 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 he was a white doctor, and he yeah. went around to the different residential schools and wrote a report to Duncan, I think was the the minister at the time, and wrote a report about what he saw and the neglect, and you know people were just left to die with sores, open sores, and this and that. Nothing was done. He report was hidden he was turfed and they went on they continued with their, their their mission to eradicate you know the indian out of the child and you know frankly um what happens to the children now is up to the first nations so i've also seen these things about dig them up and like that's just horrifying that's also extra traumatizing to me people to, to say that or to say, like, as soon as they, they look at the bones or do autopsy, like, how do you do an autopsy? But why would you? Like, you don't, you don't do that. Like, yeah. so, again, don't open your mouth if you don't know. Mm -hmm. Have respect for the First Nations. Wait and listen and hear and pray if you can in whatever spirituality you have. But, you know. I'll touch on what. Vicky just said, and I'll, I'll start with what you said, so uh, Wayne, so talking about, yeah, okay, well, couldn't they have died of smallpox um, or just disease? Yeah, sh sure, sure, right? But how would that happen? And then, first of all, how were they buried? So that is kind of a giveaway um, because <laughs> you can kind of put the, you know, connect the dots a little bit and go, well, if they died from, um, and, and really, what number are we talking so out of out of the one site that was we'll, we'll say it was about three fifty it was over three hundred it was around three fifteen yeah I think it was around three fifteen yeah so call it three fifteen for for the purpose of this podcast right now um, not you know not to be disrespectful and getting the figure wrong but um, what proportion of that even if it even if it was a handful why would you bury them in that way you know so to to even kind of just throw that that remark off the cuff in that manner is not uh, ideal. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 you know, just, yeah, no. Why couldn't you, know? you give them back to their parents? Right. So that they could be spiritually looked after. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a way to cut them, to cut us. And then you have this horrible feeling in your chest. But if you're trying to eliminate a certain class of people, that's, that's the not way how to you do it. it. You know, yeah. that yeah. you hide them, you, you, you know. Oh, they ran away. Oh, they ran away. We heard that a lot, too, if you read those reports. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to add to this is, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I acknowledge at the beginning, I, I, was, I was lucky in my own way that my family didn't 
have to go through this. I didn't have none of my uncles or aunties or, or any of us went to residential schools. But, for, and for those that have trouble, I guess, maybe comprehending or understanding or even believing, um, and I hope that, that that would eventually change. But imagine a village, imagine all of us living in a society without children. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what happened in this context. All the children in a community, gone. Gone. And, you know, I saw one of the letters actually from the principal from that school uh, where they discovered. And around, it was around Christmas time. And the, just the arrogance in that letter about how you will be privileged to get your children over Christmas, how we're gifting you, and it's used, gifting you this opportunity to spend Christmas with your children. Just be mindful, though. They need to be back on time because otherwise we're not going to do this ever again. But just the audacity in the, the, of that, that letter to, to send to parents. And, of course, you have to come and pick them up yourself. And they're like 100 miles away, but you have to come and pick them up. You can't send a proxy and they can't be... Oh, no, I said you, they, I think they could be sent a proxy uh, if they had a written consent. But they couldn't be sent on their own or, or anything. But just... To me, it's it's just it's just so multi-level, and then and then you hear about people like, well, why can't they just get over it? Because it's still happening. The trauma is still happening in people. The trauma has never been dealt with by people like you. You know, you told Vicky and, and it, or acknowledged just the acknowledgement. Again, it's part of the truth and reconciliation. Truth has to happen first. We're living it now, and I and and it'll continue because there's no way of hiding this now. Um, and only then, when, when all the truth and everything is out, we'll be able to reconcile. But, you know, it's going to take generations. It took generations to happen. It's going to take generations to fix it. And, and people now are starting to t make those steps. And we as an organization are, are helping people. And there's other organizations that are trying to help people. Because as an individual, in order to be healthy, you need to be holistically healthy. And the First Nations... Views of holistic wellness is obviously the four quadrants of spiritual, spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental. And but without all those fours, you can't be holistic, holistically well. You could be physically well, but if you've gone through these traumas and haven't dealt with them yet, and you're self-medicating through alcohol or drugs, yeah. or, and you're replicating those what you learn and what you learn from your parents, like. You know, again, like you were saying, Vicky, about, you know, the parenting skills. They didn't have parenting skills because they, they didn't have any kids in the village. For people to then, you know, and then at 18, like you're tossed back into society. It's like, here you go. Yep. Right? And that to only to have your children then taken away from you. So, again, like I said, what the message that I wanted to make is for those that may think in their head, well, why can't you get over it? Just get that out of your head. The reason why, and it, like, and, and I, what I would say to those people, and what I have said to one person is like, are you going to go tell that to the U.S. who got bombed in 9/11? Are you going to tell that to any veteran that is still alive today and fought in a war to get over it? No, no. Be respectful. There's, first of all, there's nothing to get like, there's nothing to get over it because there people are still living it, and it's going to take generations before that. Is that that 
is fixed. And, and we need to be mindful that everyone, we're all individuals. It'll take, we, we will all take our own time in this process. And some will take longer, some will take less some time. Some never will. Some, some, will, some will never will. Exactly. They'll never heal. Yeah. My mother never healed, definitely. And I don't know if we will. We'll see. Um, but And I think I don't want anybody's... Um, I don't want... Like, I don't want people to feel sorry for us. No, and I don't... Not, and this is where sympathy. why I'm at that point where I'm tired of arguing with people or fighting with people anymore because I just don't care what they think. Mm -hmm. I'm on the journey of, of um, dealing with all that trauma and trying to, you know, help my son and focus on my family and my cousins, and we're all bringing it back. And, you know, my aunt is a respected elder in the Métis um, community. And, you know, we're seeing that and we're focusing on that positivity. And then when I see these comments, most of the time I don't respond. Mm. Um, but sometimes, sometimes I'll do, but I'm no longer going to fight everybody anymore. It's like, because it's taking too much out of me. I so, can't help it. I know I it's it. great. I know I love it, and I love it. And you others, like, take it up, and even the younger generation too. Take yeah. it up. You I, take I, it on. Yeah, you take it on. And here's what we can tell you: what we learned during our time, because I think our time was worse. I, I mean, we always say yeah. that, right? The older generation always looks at the younger generation. Says, we had it worse. Yeah. I mean, I do have my moments. I mean, there are trolls out there, and there are trolls that are just trying to get people, get you going. And I think we, you know, I'm I'm being more mindful of that now and not getting into those kinds of debates but I will correct inaccuracies I will you know uh, point things out I won't stand by anymore and you know somebody's saying oh that powwow that I just went to I'm like same like yeah. you right oh wow that was in an awesome celebration like then they look at me like no I was talking about a meeting I'm like well then you're using the wrong terminology so I will you know, I did an undergrad in education, so I guess I'm using. But you're kind. Yeah, I, I would. I would have educate. said something like, um, you know, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore. Oh, I think I think that. Yeah. I think that. <laughs> but I, I guess my frontal lobe is, yeah, is stopping yeah, yeah, yeah. that from leaving my lips. I, I, yeah, trust me, I thought about. If that I could learn how to say that, maybe in Cree, some way to like, so people couldn't understand it, maybe that would help me out because nobody's ever gonna. The, you know the population is never all going to speak Cree so yeah yeah I'm trying to think of trying to think of kind of where to go on that because there's so many I know the the nice thing about having the the two microphones is I've just been kind of kicking back making my notes and just sort of like thinking about all this stuff and then uh, then I gotta speak um, yeah I, I mean I, I like what you said Wayne about the um, yeah, the ridiculousness of, uh, oh, you know, why don't you just get over it? And I'm, I'm glad that you and, and you gave the examples because I, I was going to give those pretty much same examples where it's like that. It makes no sense to say that because how would you say that to anyone, anyone who would who's gone through the experiences of that? And then when you talk about and I didn't really think of it in that way. And then when you said it, it kind of got the, the wheels turning. But when you think about a community where you just take all the children out. Like think about that today, what that would look like. Just in your just in the neighborhood, right? Just in a put it at a small scale. You know, a, a a 5 mile by 5 mile radius. Just take all the children out under the age of uh, 18. How would that change the makeup of that area? 
right? Okay, well, yeah, you're probably stopping right now going like, oh yeah, you know, that that's, it's hard, it, it's, it's impossible to imagine, like it's impossible to fully appreciate it, um, the, the, the sadness and the treachery of that, um, but at least imagining's a start to, to understanding what that would have looked like. And then, uh, Vicky, you said it as well, like talking about the um, generational trauma. It's no different than, uh, you know, a rape victim who, who struggles after the fact or a, 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 soul, a, a veteran coming back and struggling with what happened, their experiences during wartime where, you know, you self-medicate and then, you know, maybe that manifests itself to abusing the people around you or as a mother, if you're abusing substances uh, when you're pregnant, you're going to affect the, not only are you going to, you're going to affect the biology of that child and then that child's going to grow up and what's going to happen then, you know, so even if you make it out alive, the generational trauma occurs because that's the nature of doing something like a genocide. <laughs> that's that's the effect that's the the circular effect and so it's it's a difficult one to to get out of and then um also too i, I mean I, I guess as of today they just called a federal election a, a snap federal election anyway but just like kind of makes you makes you think about certain things and then from i, I watched like a 10 minute spiel from Trudeau this morning on on the TV talking about it and and so I was starting to even think too I'm like well when's the last time I heard anything about the residential schools it was probably about a month ago that I really saw anything that was of substance like as far as um awareness um I mean if you go looking for it you can find it but you gotta go looking for it which is not right um but yeah just for the for the upcoming election kind of in the midst of uncovering these sites and actually uh vincent plana who's a who's been a guest on the show several times he just wrote he works for the daily hive so he just wrote an article on saint paul's uh oh, in North End? yeah yeah so there so i read his article uh the other day um that they're going to investigate that one and yep. I, th I think they're going to radar that one as well um but yeah and so now you have a federal election coming up on september 20th and i'm curious what the I mean, it sounds like they're running the election primarily on COVID response, um, which is a good COVID excuse and climate to climate uh, change. I would assume, right? Yeah, and, and so that's a good, um, you know, the the <laughs> trying to figure out how to say it with kind of walking the line here. Um, but you can run an election, which I'm sure is what they're going to do, and I don't think this is going to be a topic of discussion. Or if it is, it will certainly be teeny weeny compared to oh COVID and the economy and climate you know because um, it's in the midst of all this so that that's kind of interesting it's, it's, I mean we'll see what happens but I don't know, you can kind of see the forest through the trees on that one I think it's always been like that I mean I have to say my whole yeah. life so um for context because my grandfather was Métis he could vote and he also um he spoke Cree fluently uh spoke Cree we didn't speak the Métis language which is Michif which was like a combination of Cree and French but so he they spoke Cree so um, uh, he would actually translate, you got to think like this was in the 1940s and 50s, on the radio, um, the political debates and the politician stance in decree. Wow. And he would, so he could tell people, so all the First Nations people there were Cree in Northern Alberta, they could, uh, yeah, he would uh, translate it for them. Yeah, I wish I'd get a hold of those recordings. <laughs> 
That would uh, be cool. Yeah, it is. It is really cool, right? Yeah. And then growing up, um, we would always look at it, and then working at INAC, we would actually get a list, and um, and I don't know if it was just from Indigenous employees or a network or whatever. Is here's what all the politicians are saying about all of the, you know. Different topics. Yeah, different topics yeah. Um, about you know First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, and here's where they stand. Uh, and having worked under um, conservative and having worked under liberals, mm. I will tell you this: um, uh, Indigenous Services Canada should not be a federal ministry. It should be an agency. If if they want to keep it around, like let's just admit that it's not going away. When I started in '96, they said, "Look." Vicky, we're going to hire you. You know, you're an Indigenous woman. You're, you're taking your CGA. It's great. We're going to hire you. This isn't a long-term job. In five years, Indian Affairs is going to be gone. You know, it's all going to be devolved to the First Nations, and it's not going to be here. So that was in 1996. So now, uh, here we are, right? Um, so many years later, 25 years later, and it's still there and still going strong. Take it out of the federal government so it's not tied to political. Um, political politics. politics yeah so the minister of indian affairs is just whoever got elected mm. and whoever that prime minister likes regardless of their education background understanding boom or even worse if they have some sort of what they call an understanding and then in that case you know frankly i've seen this so many times their ego gets ahead of actually doing the right thing. And to be a politician, frankly, you have to give up some of your values, if not all of your values, in order to make everybody happy and to keep carrying on. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible. So like, just, could we at least do that? Like just remove the political BS from it, from that side. So it wouldn't matter who was in charge. It was just, here's what it does. Here's enough money to run it. We're gonna ask the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit, how they want it to work. And then that's how it's going to go forward. Because that certainly isn't how it's run now. Conservatives came in, they chopped half the, um, half of the, the workforce. They get out, the liberals hire them all back. Mm. We were having negotiations, discussions. We were having amazing conversations with the province about child welfare. Cut off at the knees, you know, when the conservatives came in. And, and you know what? I get it. It's all about money and spending. That's not what this is about. This is about people. So take it out. Uh, that's interesting because if you think about from a reconciliation standpoint, isn't that that sounds like a pretty effective way to go in that direction? You get people, you, you get indigenous people to be a part, to literally be a part of it at, at the highest echelon, rather than you know whoever. And and that's the distinction that you made. It's whoever's appointed. Um, and if, you know, the, the Trump administration showed anything was like, you know, he was, he appointed Jared to like, what was it like the Middle Eastern something or other. And it's like, he doesn't know nothing about anything, let alone that, you know, so, um, you know, when you look at like cabinet, you know, things like that, where you're just appointed. I mean, and the hope is that, I mean, the reason that you get elected to prime minister is because hopefully you're good, right? For whatever it's reason. It's pushing and your it's, mandate. It's and pushing that, the and party mandate. That's all it ever is. That's all it ever is. Yeah, pushing the party mandate. There's so many promises they made. Oh, all yeah. lies. Yeah. Same with the ones before them. All lies. It, I always look at it. Who's going to do the least amount of harm? Yeah. 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 And so if you, if you appoint people who actually have, and, and that's what you said, understanding, 
you know, in air quotes, right? Whatever the hell that means. Well, Murray Sinclair, I think, would be a good place to start. You know, but you you get people who can actually, you know, when you talk about that's the reconciliation part. You bridge the gap. You try to, you know, um, acknowledge the the mistakes of the past. I mean, mistake is putting it lightly, but mistakes that were made and and the travesties that occurred that were mandated. It wasn't accidental. You know, it wasn't, oh, they were intended to do good. No, you know, it was just, uh, it was actually a pretty clean way of exercising a genocide. Like, if you compare that to, you know, the the case of of Rwanda, where it was just uh, carried out by machete. Yeah. So that was an an entire genocide carried out by machete, machete, which we'll get into. Um, Not today, but... You know, so to set up a, a assimilation camp, as it should be more accurate, that that accurately describes what it was. Yeah, we're either gonna, going. you're either gonna relinquish your status, or we're gonna, you know, take take you, you know, literally take you out of the game, so to speak. Um, you know, it's 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 dark and it's it's sad and it's it's just unfortunate at so many levels, and it's hard to believe. And I, I think, Wayne, you said that as well, like for people on the outside looking in. I know like when I sort of last few months talking to my British friends who know nothing about this, which makes sense. You know, how would you know, how would they yeah, know? Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, but talking about this, it's like, what? Like that actually happened? Yep. And as late as the 80s. What? Yep. That's what happened. You know, so to kind of get over that, it, it, you know, is, a, is another hurdle in itself. But, um, you know. Yeah. I know. It's just one of those, um, it's a mess. It's a mess. But you got to bring it into the light, at the very least. You know, that's where you start. You got to bring the, you got to bring the, you shed a light on it, you know, and not say that it was intended for good or whatever excuse you want to say to cover, you know, about face, right? You know, you want to cover that, you know, eliminate that aspect of it. It's great to see, though, the culture coming back, especially with the younger generation and um, how many entrepreneurs there are. Right. Yeah. Like that wasn't really a thing when I was growing up, like to think that I could own my own business or do that. And like just to see so many of them doing it for themselves. Everybody's. Yeah. It's the regalia, the dancing, the um, the singing, the drumming. Yeah, Many people are reclaiming their identity, uh, taking control. Like, you know, we, when you think about, you know, prior to colonization, like we had there, there was nations here that had their own laws, their own like their own ways of living. Yes. And they were thriving yep. in their own way. And, but then you came, the Europeans came and the British came and that. But it wasn't what you were doing. You were savages like you didn't have they didn't understand anything. They just wanted to impose what they they had. And then from day one. You know, it was a way to control, it was a kill, assimilate, what have you. You know, the 60s coops, there's just so many so many things that were done, right? The child and family services, a whole other issue as yeah. well, you know. Um, but now to see, you know, nations really coming together and, you know, just for example, they, they, again, like I shared with the work that I do with the First Nation Health Authority, it was nations coming together, telling government, we can do that better. And they are doing it and better. And they are. We yeah. are doing it, it better. It is better. We are doing it better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I guess goosebumps, like you said, thinking about, you know, those entrepreneurs and those people that are, are now thriving, right? And are taking control over their identity, over their, their, 
their governance over everything. And pride and, and, and respect. The pride. And the respect that comes from your generation, Marcus. Yeah. Two Indigenous people. I never got that growing up. And yeah. not that I got disrespect either, like from my friends, like Wayne said. But there was in the greater population, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's, it is changing. It's, and that gives me so much hope for, even there's a little thing, like I had to get vaccinated. I'm immune compromised, so I'm one of the first. But they also said in BC, which I loved, if you are, I, if you are Indigenous, you can go ahead and get vaccinated. But you, when you fill out the form, so I said to Curtis, look, you should get vaccinated, you know. Um, and, and he said, the question here, Mom, it says, do you identify as Indigenous? I am Indigenous. How dare they do I identify as I Indigenous? I'll clarify, I'll add a little bit to that when you, when you said, you know, that we, we were prioritized for the vaccination, but the prioritization, uh, and the, it's just supposed to show that there's still work to be done. So when the vaccination was rolling out, um, you know, our organization um, administered the vaccines in community and the in communities were, were prioritized as well as our elders were prioritized, but the urban population wasn't. Yes. And the the way the community was doing it, it was a whole of community approach. It wasn't based on age. It was everybody. If we're vaccinating one person, we're vaccinating everyone. So we actually advocated and we came together with the Métis Nation Great. of BC, yeah. the BC, the Association of Friendship Centers, ourselves with PHO, the Public Health of Office, and we advocated for that to change, for the prioritization to also include the urban infant population. And that happened in uh, yes. March 31st. Yes. So that's probably when you were able, like April 1st, I think. So again, even though we're working collaboratively and in partnerships with, with the province, there's still work to be done, right? And especially, you know, the, the off-reserve populations, we call it, uh, we use the terminology urban and away from home. Um, away from home, if you feel that, you know, you have that connection to your community and urban if, if you don't, because not everybody has that connection or has even set foot in their, their possibly their reserve. So, um, so yeah, all that to say is that, you know, when we talk about First Nation people, it's not just the on-reserve population. Yeah. There's also the off-reserve, and especially in BC, there's like 70% that live off-reserve. So, again, it just goes to show that there's still more work to be done because the rest of Canada, again, the federal government is only focused on reserve. Yeah, we were talking to friends, um, yeah. yeah, across the country, our group, and... Yeah, they weren't all treated the same for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, Wayne. So I think on that note, we could probably uh, stop for today. I know that was, uh, yeah. I'm happy I set it up this way. I know, you know, I think I mentioned at the, at the start, you know, when you, pull, when you start to pull the thread you know, you start to see all these things unravel and then you go, holy cow, how am I going to get through all this content, you know? Um, but I think particularly because, um, you know, I'm a, a Canadian and, and kind of like on this, you know, the, the sort of the next generation that's going to get into the workforce and then be the professionals and then hopefully in a positive way drive something forward. Um, I felt that this particular topic deserved more attention than the other four. Um, and I think this serves as a good introduction to, because the other thing about history as well is that it's somewhat, well, it's kind of abstract in a way. There's no connection. There's no direct connection to it in my case. 
you know, I have no connection to a gulag or, or to, you know, the, the, you know, Rwanda or anything like that, you know, so to, I, I think it's very important in your understanding to get, you know, we mentioned holistic, uh, you know, holistic health, but a holistic understanding. You have to have that human element to it as well. You can't forget that. It's not just numbers on a page, Dates. names on a page, you know, there, yeah. there's, those were people who lived and laughed and cried and people, right? And, and so I think it's very important to get that perspective. I certainly got a perspective. I'm going to have to go through this one, you know, and re-listen to it again. And hopefully that will, oh, I've got, I've got like a full page of notes here. So, I mean, I, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> um, you know, so, um, but anyway, I'll stop talking um, and I'll, I'll give it to Vicky first and then I'll give it to Wayne. But um, just any closing, any closing remarks for today? Yeah, I think for anybody um, in in Canada that wants to make a difference, uh, show respect to the Indigenous organizations that already exist. Um, one of my um, concerns, you know, I, even when I joined the corporate world in 2012, I had to take a bunch of training, uh, corporate training, right? There's your first week of training. Mm. There was nothing in there about Indigenous people. So everybody that comes to Canada for this big international company, there wasn't anything said, even in the cultural awareness training about Indigenous people. Yep, so I raised it. And of course, nobody ever got back to me. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, because I raised it in my own special way. <laughs> what the fuck is this? Um, and what was funny was that uh, Wayne used to be a model. Hope oh. you don't mind me saying this. <laughs> no. oh, there you go. And... He showed up in one of the stock photographies as like a Spanish guy. Yeah. Oh my God. I took a picture of it and I sent it to him. I'm like, Wayne, oh my God. Okay. So yeah. anyway, so if you're out there and you're working, please push for some cultural awareness where you are delivered by an indigenous company. Cause there's people that do that. Reputable. Yeah. Reputable. Yeah. Um, Bob Joseph is one of them, but there's a lot of other ones too. And, uh, you know, Phil Lane Jr., et cetera. There's a lot, but by a reputable Indigenous company. Um, and learn what you can. Don't deliver Indigenous programs if you're not an Indigenous mm. organization. You know what? You want to be an ally? Then help support those organizations. I, I'm, I volunteer on a bunch of boards, uh, Indigenous boards. Uh, one is the Vancouver Aboriginal Health Society in the downtown east side, which is here for all... Um, all you know for urban indigenous people as well and and there's so many other organizations out there and they're fighting for money and that's not okay um so support and help these these organizations to grow and um and yeah and i have a lot of hope for the future for my son and for all my my family absolutely uh, and i guess for me i i go back to the words that i used uh, during your podcast is um uh, you know, approach this situation with an open mind and an open heart. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen news articles of, you know, statues coming down and people trying to block that. And, and you know, I, I, I guess I, I ask this question, and I'll put it out there, is like, what, what impact will that have on your life for that statue of McDonald or Duncan or whoever that's being brought down? When you think about what they've done to the First Nation people and what it means to them to see those statues come down. We're not trying to rewrite history. History is already there. What we're trying to do is actually 
rectify <laughs> what's happened because it's missing in our history books. It's not what I learned. It's I know that again, I know governments are, are moving towards changing that. Not fast enough in my mind, but the truth has to be told. And all of us as Canadians, and yes, I do consider myself Canadian, I you know, um, we need to do better. We need to do better. And in order to do that, you just need to listen and you need to appreciate. And, you know, as Vicky said, don't try to do, don't try to do it on your own. Like seek out the information you yeah. need. There's lots of resources out there. There's so many talented indigenous people that are out there, you know, utilize those resources and benefit from them. And again, you know, I'll just repeat, just, come with this with an open mind and open heart great well thank you so much uh, vicky and wayne and uh it'll be uh we'll get into the nitty-gritty on the on the first episode when when that comes out you know we'll go from there but thanks so much <laughs> thanks marcus thank you